we will wander from the truth and we will be in danger of not having salvation. Let's remember what he's already stated to us in this letter. Way back in Romans 1, 16 through 17, he wrote these words, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul wants his readers to know that the main purpose of his writing to them is that he desires for them to understand the powerful gospel of God. While it's true that he makes this greatest thesis statement in, this, in, in these verses, he doesn't unpack it at all for his readers or for us. He makes the statement, and in a real way, he leaves it hanging. He doesn't finish his thought. It begs out, cries out for more explanation. And yet he breaks off. And he goes into a full explanation. Not of the good, positive effects of the gospel, but instead to the darkest, most bleak backdrop you could ever imagine. Paul backs up in the next verse, verse 18, and he begins to address the greatest problem man has. The need, the problem is simple and yet it's profound. The reality of the righteous God is plain for everyone to see. And Romans 1.18 says that the response of humanity is this. For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God has revealed himself to man, but the response of man has been absolutely to reject God by actively suppressing the truth. This is the massive problem that every man has in relation to God. There are no exceptions from Adam until today in regard to natural man. We see from 119 to 320 the convincing and undeniable case of Paul against all humans. And this is the case laid out in simple terms. He first talks about the pagan, those who are lawless and rebel against God from verse 19 through the end of chapter 1. And at the end of chapter 1, he begins to talk about the sexually immoral, the worst kinds of sexual immorality, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, Faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Paul holds our head over the pit of hell that God deniers inevitably create in this life. And then he writes, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do it, but they give hearty approval to all who do such things. Not only do we sin, but we cheer our fellow man on as we run headlong into the fiery wrath of the eternal God. And having laid out the clear case against the lawless, Paul turns his focus to a second group of suppressing the truth. A second way of suppressing the truth. And he looks then at someone who looks a lot better to us. But it's far more deadly. And I want to tell you this morning that 
probably we have some lawless people in here, and we have a lot of people who, all of us, who have been lawless in our hearts. But listen, this group of people litters these pews. Suppressing the truth in moralism and self-righteousness. Now, the first group of sinners gets shouted down by good folks in this world. Who could ever live such a gross and terrible life? But here's the truth that Paul wants you and I to know. The second group, this group we're about to talk about, is in potentially greater danger because they have judged themselves and found that they are good enough. Paul writes, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He made his wrath evident to those who live in gross immorality because he turned them over to their sin. But listen to me, all of you who think you'll earn your way to God, he is storing up his wrath against you. While you get attaboys from everybody in your neighborhood and at your job for how good of a guy you are, and some guy in a suit will stand over you one day and say, he was a good man. God has stored every drop of his wrath up, and on that day he will unleash it on you. The hardened heart of the moralist, the good person, the one who thinks they're better off because they're loved by society for their charitable deeds will be the reason that they will not turn to God because they believe they don't need any other righteousness which is not their own. They deny the need of Jesus Christ to make them acceptable to God. They have lowered the perfect standard of the judge to the standard of I'm good enough. But Paul says of this second group, God will use the righteousness as the standard to judge all mankind, and you don't measure up. Having laid out the evidence in this case against all humanity in these two ways, the rebellious, immoral, godless person, and the good moral man, Paul now turns to a final group, which is also littering our pews today, and that's the religious, especially the religious Jew. These people believed they were earning their righteousness by keeping God's law. They even had a place to boast because they are God's chosen people. In covenant with God. Marked out with the outward signs of the cult of Judaism. Surely these people will have, have to be accepted by God. Paul says that the only way they will be accepted or have meaning in their religion is if they perfectly keep the law. And the reality is that no man can perfectly keep the law. So outward signs and the effort to be religiously acceptable to God will not gain a person any advantage. You must be circumcised of the heart, not of the flesh. And that's done by the Spirit. Paul answers his main objections to his case, which humanity screams at him and his own heart screamed out before he came to know Christ. He answers it in, in verses 1 through 8, and then he closes with a guilty verdict against us in verses 19 through 20 when he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The verdict is against us today. We are all standing before the righteous judge, guilty, and the sentence due for our guilt is death eternally in hell. At this point, every person in here should be crying 
if not outwardly, inwardly. For relief, for rescue, for redemption. If God keeps the record of our sin, of my sin, who can stand in His holy presence? The answer, according to Romans 1.18 through 3.20 is, no one, not even one. This brings us to the greatest paragraph ever written. The backdrop of the previous verses is so dark and bleak and inescapable that the relief and rescue and redemption we will now be even it'll now be even more beautiful to our eyes, spiritual eyes, than we can ever imagine. Listen to these profound words from Paul. Look at your text. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the, of the one who has faith in Jesus. This morning, we will begin to unpack a monumental truth contained in these verses. We will be in the paragraph for, a, I don't know, weeks. So I want today to just give you an outline of this paragraph, and I want to close triumphantly at the resurrection. This is Resurrection Sunday. I have not forgotten. But rather than get sentimental about one day on a calendar, why not understand the truth that makes it so powerful? If all it is to you is a celebration of some pageant of the spring I pity you. What I'm about to tell you from God's Word is what makes the resurrection all the more beautiful. Our hope, our faith must be in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our hope and our faith must be in the finished work signified by that resurrection. This paragraph breaks down in four ways, and I want to bring them to you first. The manifestation of God's righteousness begins in a new era of history. Look at verse 21. This is what Paul is doing when he says, but now. Martin Lloyd-Jones said there's no greater words in the Bible than these words, but now. In Ephesians, it's termed, but God. Here, it's but now. It's the same idea. The black, bleak, historical fact of our sin has been painted by Paul masterfully and now he says but now it is true that the grammatical marker points us to the shift of the flow in argument at this point Paul has spent some time in one direction talking about the sin of mankind and the guilty verdict against man but in 321 Paul pivots the text to begin showing the detailed exposition of Romans 1, 16 through 17. He picks right back up where he was in 16 through 17. Now we get the good news. 
what he gave us as a thesis statement will now be explained and defended for, not a paragraph, 13 chapters. After giving his thesis, remember, I said his mind turned to the backdrop, the sinfulness of the entire world. He carried the, that necessary argument through to the presentation of the evidence against all type of men, the futile objections by a specific group of men, and then the inescapable, blistering verdict of guilty. Having done this work to prepare, now he's ready to deliver the good news. Aren't you ready to hear the good news? Don't you want to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? The text pivots to the gospel right here. But now, and it's necessary this way of bringing the gospel to the good, of the good news to the world. It's necessary to do it this way. Before the good news of a great Savior can be delivered with undeniable power, the message of the awful state and helpless condition of sinners must be established. Paul does this Everywhere in all of his letters to the churches and in, 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 even in his recorded sermons and acts. The call of the gospel preacher is first to make the need of the good news obvious to the folks he's talking to. Just how bad they are, how desperate their situation is, it must be explained. Listen, we have to stop trying to make people feel good. And wasting our time trying to help them think that they're okay with God. Just like they are in their natural condition. The love of God must be presented against the full, fearful background of the wrath of God. Against sin and sinners. And this text does just that. Having painted the backdrop, he says, but now. But it's bigger than even a grammatical tool to turn the text. For Paul is saying here that all of history turns at this, at this very truth. All the world was kept under sin, but now salvation history took a turn about 2,000 years ago. Things changed in the epic of the world's history. The old epic was, was covered with Sin, an undeniable problem and a hopeless situation. That's what it was. Year after year, thousands of years passed. Paul is saying in this paragraph, listen, I know you're looking down into the eternal pit of hell after my case has been delivered about your sin. You hear the booming voice of the just judge as he delivers guilty, guilty, guilty. But don't let the despair of your condition overwhelm you, Paul says. I have good news. The old days where sin mounted up and seemed to be unchecked among all humanity, that old epic is over. We have hope in this new manifestation of God's righteousness. And that hope has a name. His name is Jesus Christ. But now is Paul's way of saying everything in history pivoted at the reality of the cross. The central event in all of history on which everything else turns is about to be explained to these Roman Christians and to us. Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. These first two, 
These first two words are intended to turn our minds from the bleakness of the condition before holy God in our flesh and set our minds on the amazing truth of God's righteousness made manifest apart from the law. We have no hope in keeping the law. Our mouths have been closed. We can't deny what Paul has said, but now. It's at this point he says the righteousness of God has been made obvious. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. What does he mean, apart from the law? Just as Romans 1.17, this word righteousness of God refers to the justifying actions of God in regard to the salvation of sinners. Righteousness of God here is not talking primarily about him as a characteristic, but rather what he does to save men. This righteousness is revealed when the true gospel of God is preached. It truly is the gospel that is the power of God because it is the good news that the righteousness of God is made manifest. Paul wants us to understand how the righteousness is displayed through the gospel and how that relates to the Old Testament, which we receive the righteousness apart from the Old Testament the law, but the Old Testament witnesses to it. While this plain plan is now made manifest to the whole world in this time, in the time of Paul and, and since, it's not a new plan. As if it's totally distinct from the Old Covenant. The only correct understanding of the Old Testament is to see it as types and shadows of the covenant and the mediator that were to come. The person and work of Christ which is the manifestation of the righteousness of God. If you read the Old Testament any other way, you fail. If you, read the, if you read the stories of the Old Testament as fun stories and fun facts and historical events and you miss Jesus, you fail. The whole purpose from Genesis to Malachi is to say to us, we are sinners and God's righteousness will be manifested in His Messiah. Everything, everything, every person, every event, every institution, every symbol, every covenant sign is simply a neon sign to the cross. Stop reading it any other way. Don't find fun little lessons about moralism or courage or do-goodism. Don't look at it as God bleakly destroying a bunch of people, pouring out and zapping mankind. Look at it for what Jesus said it is. It is the revelation of me. And that's what Paul says. Apart from the law, but not without it. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. I want you to understand in general today and next week, we will hang on to this hook a little longer and we'll hang a little more on it. But what he's saying is, is that Christ is revealed to us fully, manifestly in this time, but he was witnessed to from the beginning of time. Second, we see all men are equally sinful and savable. All types of men are equally sinful and savable. That's a good word, isn't it? Some of you came in here today and you thought, I'm unsavable. And what the Bible says about you is, you are savable. 
Paul starts this point out by saying that since the righteousness of God has been made manifest to the world, it's equally important that everyone understand that access to God's righteousness is found through faith in Christ. If you want to have the necessary righteousness of God, which is necessary to come into his holy presence, then you will have to believe in the only righteousness of God displayed to the world. You will have to have righteousness by faith and not by your effort and your works if you hope to stand before God. In this point, Paul moves beyond the mere statement that God is righteous and has made it plain for the world to see. He moves here to the personal point that we need to be connected to that righteousness and that can only happen by faith in Christ. The only hold that we have on the necessary righteousness to stand in the presence of a holy God is the hold of faith. That's it. Why do men need this alien righteousness provided by Jesus? That question is answered by Paul, saying that man is equally sinful. You need Christ's righteousness because you have no righteousness outside of Christ. I don't care what your mama told you. You're not any good. You're awful. Despicable. Dirty. Gross. Untouchable. Unclean. Unapproachable. Not the guy that hung out at the bar last night. Not the person that visited a prostitute this week. Not some cheat or scoundrel or prisoner. They're not the dirty ones. We are. All of us. We have no right to stand before God. And that's why he keeps talking about the righteousness of God. Because it is the problem of all problems. How does a sinful, terrible, rotten person come into the holy presence of the Holy One? That's why we need the alien righteousness. That righteousness which is from external of ourselves. That righteousness which belongs to another. That righteousness which is not my own but is made to be my own. That's why I need it. That's why you need it. Because of the sin of our first parent, Adam, we have all been born into sin. Sin is defined in many ways in Scripture. And yet here, Paul defines it in this most memorable way as falling short of the glory. Of God. Here we come face to face with the fact that we have all missed the mark of living up to God. Does anybody want to be bold enough to say, No, I haven't? I thought so. We've all been born enemies of God and enemies of His holiness, but this falling short says more than that. It means, listen to this, that mankind was created originally to in his perfect state, reflect the glory of God. When we sinned in the garden, we lost our status of being the physical representation of the glory of God. That's what happened when we sinned. We were supposed to live and have children so that the glory of God would cover the face of the earth as the water covers the sea. It's not that man contains the glory of God in himself, but rather that he's like a mirror designed to reflect the brightness of God's glory to the whole world. And when we sinned, the mirror was shattered. It was shattered into a million disordered pieces. 
This is what it means to be a sinner according to our text. And this is why we need someone to restore the righteousness of God for us. Because we've fallen woefully short. We have been crushed under the weight of our sin. We are shattered. Does anybody in here know about being shattered and broken? God, by His grace, did not throw the mirror out, but He made a way to repair the window. The third and central point of this text is the declaration of the fountainhead of the righteousness of God. Now, I've been excited, but I haven't been excited because I'm about to get excited. This is the meat. This is it. If you fell asleep, I don't know how, but if you did, wake yourself up. Paul is trained to help us all see that the righteousness of God is displayed in the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. But what are the people believing in that are able to receive his righteousness and be saved? What are they believing in? Look at verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. God did not decide after many millennia of men sinning to simply forget about it. To lessen the weight of the offense against his holy name. Paul doesn't dismiss the seriousness of God's need to have his holy wrath satisfied due to the sinful mankind. No, that's not what he says in this text. It could never be that way. God is not a cosmic pawpaw or Santa Claus. God's justice must be vindicated. He is a holy God. So he makes the argument that those who believe in the finished work of Christ are, get this, this is what your word justified means, declared righteous. That's what that word means. It's a glorious word. He doesn't say at the fall of man, go be a better person and try harder. And we'll see if you can muster the test. He says, sit down while I do all the work that's necessary to bring you back to myself. Is that a good word? So he makes the argument that those who believe in the finished work of Christ are declared righteous by God. They are accounted as righteous even as they stand before him. Listen to this. Sinners! The good news is that God changes, doesn't change the rules of the game. He does not change the rules of the game of life. The good news is God himself fulfills the rules of the game on our behalf and then turns to his people and settles all their accounts of their sin against him, a holy God. He explains the debt of sin according to this passage. God wipes away, purifies the sinner standing before him. If you have faith in Christ alone, then you are counted as purified by the Holy One of Heaven, the righteous God. Isn't this the best news ever? No. No. Why? Because if our paragraph stopped right there, it would mean... That when we're justified, we still can't stand before God. Because our sins are forgiven, 
but we don't have the necessary righteousness to stand in his presence. See, when he wipes away our sin, we're forgiven. But that would just put us in purgatory forever. <laughs> that would just put us in a far country. Hey, okay, we'll let them live. But without righteousness, no one will see the face of God. You hear what he said? Without righteousness, no one will see my face. He didn't say, if you get cleaned up enough, you can come. If you find some way, or if I find some way, to just cover the sin by purifying it, that'll be sufficient. He said, it's got to be washed away, and then you have to have new clothes. You have to have new clothes. It's not enough to just be clean. You have to be clothed to come into his presence. Paul goes on to say, and are justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. We read that we are counted as righteous through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is another step toward the heart of the cross. Christ ransomed us from our sin. He paid the necessary debt to set us free. He said himself in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to make himself a ransom for many. Christ paid the ransom price due for your sin and my sin, believer. He paid it. Do you believe this? He paid the debt you owed. He ransomed all of God's children from their sin. Most modern Christians deny this teaching because they te they're teaching people that they are born free. So when you say you were purchased from slavery of sin, they say, no, I'm not a slave. Like the Jews said, we're born free. So what the gospel then becomes is, hey, folk, listen, give up your freedom. <laughs> give up all your fun and come be a slave to God in Christ. It messes the whole thing up when you talk about being free without being saved in your natural state. Paul sets us straight right here with a simple but profound fact. Christ is the ransom price paid to God. That's what redemption is. Paid to God the Father so that all his children can be set free from their slave master, sin, and Satan. And you know exactly what I'm saying. Don't deny it. Don't sit there and make up excuses for the way you've lived your life. Listen, you can't stop sinning. You say, I'm not a slave. I just can't do anything about sin. <clears throat> that makes you a slave. You went to bed last night serving it. You're right here in these pews serving it, and you'll serve it when you leave, unless you're set free. The, the bottom line is, is that this is the way it goes. No matter how hard you try, when you try, when you actually try. We say we try a lot. We don't really try that much in our natural state. We just keep sinning and saying we're trying because that makes everybody around us feel better and ourselves too. And our mom cries less. You can't get free from sin in your natural state. If you find a small victory over one sin, guess what? You fall in the trap of another sin. It's a snare. It's a fowler's net. You can't get free. 
The harder you try, the deeper you get. You sink in the despair of your sin. You're a slave. Sin is a chain enslaving you to Satan, the devil himself, binding you to hell and total eternal separation from the good Father of God in heaven. So Paul says in our text that it's through this redemption price that we are justified, declared righteous. But it also means something else when we're redeemed. It means we're delivered, saved, reclaimed, twice bought sons of daughter and daughters of God. We are declared justified through the redemption that is in Christ. But now he takes another step into the gospel but saying, by saying that God put Christ forward as the propitiatory sacrifice. This little phrase has stumbled many people. We'll spend some time unpacking it in the weeks to come. I know I've said that a few times. Now you see how long it's going to take. But let it be sufficient to say that the meaning of this term is full of at least two thoughts of meaning. First, as I said, our sin is purified or expiated by Christ. The Old Testament Levitical sacrificial system says the sin was washed away. It was washed away on the Day of Atonement. It was covered. It was washed. It was purified. Jesus Christ is the atonement sacrifice that cleanses us from our sin. But that's not all. God had been having the sacrifice offered behind the veil of the Holy of Holies for hundreds of years. The high priest on the Day of Atonement went behind the veil, sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat, which was the place that God dwelt with the people. It was affixed, this mercy seat, to the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And the high priest disappeared behind the curtain to do the work of applying the sacrifice to the mercy seat. And the people of Israel waited literally tense in their breath, wondering would God accept this sacrifice for them. They waited in anticipation for God to accept the sacrifice that he demanded for their sin. And there's a lot of theology in this passage that I can't get to, that I can't dare get to. But I do want to say this. Get this scene in your mind. The people watched, the, Israel, the people of Israel watched the sacrifice slaughtered. The high priest, with his approved robes covering him, caught the blood in a bowl of the sacrifice. At this point, he would have gone alone, alone into the very presence of God Almighty. Behind the veil. It was done for God's people behind the veil. And all they could hear was the jingle of the bells on his robe, which let them know he wasn't dead yet. God had not struck him down yet. The priest applied the blood to the mercy seat while the people stood outside, and they would hear the sound of these jingles and then he would come back from behind the veil. And they would break into rejoicing in their hearts because they knew this meant God accepted the sacrifice one more year. One more year. All of this was to foreshadow the coming of the final sacrifice of atonement. No one was ever saved by the blood of a bull or goat. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Because the blood of those animals was only a pledge of faith by the people in the promise of the Lamb of God. Christ, who would come to make final sacrifice for righteousness. Listen to this wonderful news from verse 24. Paul is saying that God justified us who believe in Jesus Christ through the redemption that is in Christ. And then in verse 25 he says, God put forward Christ as this sacrifice. 
by his blood. The giving of his life, that's what the blood is. The giving of his life. It has no magical meaning. It just means he gave all, everything, his life. He died. Like the animal was sacrificed, Christ was sacrificed. Anyone who believes in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection will be declared righteous because they have been cleansed by him and Christ's blood has satisfied the wrath of God against everyone who believes in him because they have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is glorious. The wrath of God has been revealed against all of us because we deserve to die due to our sin. But now God has fully manifested the righteousness which is in Christ, whom he put forward as a satisfying sacrifice. What had been done for centuries by Jews, for Jews, is now for everyone who believes without distinction. And more than that, the cleansing of sin through Christ has fully satisfied the wrath of God against those who are in Christ. God did not do it behind a curtain this time. He didn't do it behind a curtain. No, he put Jesus on full display on a cross so the whole world could look at him. And as Christ hung on the cross, fully displayed before mankind, the righteousness of God dying for the unrighteous and ungodly whose God's wrath was being poured out on. It was at that moment that everyone looking at him and believing in him was saved. If you're saved today, you were saved that day. That's when you were saved. Not today, not tomorrow, not next week, not last week. You were saved when Jesus said, it is finished. And it wasn't done behind the curtain. God tore the curtain down. He put it on full display. That's what Paul says in our text, is it not? He put him forward. He took the mercy seat and shoved it to the middle of the world and said, look on him whom I have cursed on your behalf so you can receive his righteousness at no cost. If you believe, if you look on this sacrifice and believe, he declares you righteous. Still a sinner, yet a saint, clothed in his righteousness. That's good news. That's all the good news. That's the complete, foolproof good news. And some of you need to drink it. Drink it all. You're trying to find something in this world, living the patterns of life you've lived your whole life, that's leading you to death. And what I'm telling you is you need to stop what you're doing and look at Jesus Christ on the cross and believe that he will save you from your sin. Get up out of your drunken stupor of sin and look at him and be saved. That's what I'm saying to you. That's what Paul's saying to you. This has to be received as a gift of grace. No one can earn it. No one can deserve it. To try to work for it is actually a blasphemy to God. It's an insult to God, and it adds to your debt. Receive the gift of his grace by faith, and you will be saved. That's what Paul says. And as we close, we just say, 
God was in this way vindicated in his justice. He didn't just forget his need to be satisfied. He was satisfied. And he made everyone who believes just. Just and justifier of the ones who believe. So the divine justice is vindicated according to verse 26. And all eyes witnessing him crushing his son under the awful weight of our sin. You can't look at the cross and leave with the impression that God doesn't take sin deadly serious. God is just because he has justified his people by declaring them righteous through the sacrifice of his one and only son, our Savior. Come on, Grace Fellowship. This right here is good news. Praise him for it. Let me close by just telling you the most special news of all so you can really celebrate. How can we be certain God is satisfied by the sacrifice of Jesus? I mean, I hear you, Carlton. I read what you said. I mean, that makes sense to me logically. But I mean, really, what, how do I know? I don't want to tell you. Because if I tell you, you'll think I'm making it up. So I'll let the inspiring apostle tell you. He wrote these words. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you what, what was delivered to me as first importance. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was, what? Raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first roots of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ Shall all believers be made alive? I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, Paul said. We shall not die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body, who in here has a perishable body? You got a perishable body. I got one. It aches and creaks and hurts, does it not? It's given out. When this perishable, though, mortal body puts on immortality, and when this perishable body puts on imperishable, then shall come to pass this writing. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is, catch this, the law. 118 through 320 in Romans. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 321 through 26, right there. 
God's righteousness is displayed fully in the fact that he put Christ forward as the propitiation for the sins of his people. And this allows him to not only forgive their sin, but give them the necessary righteousness to be in his presence. He did this apart from the law, but the Old Testament law bore witness to it. We're declared righteous, Paul says, by God when we place our full faith in the finished work of Christ as our redemption. God is vindicated. We are justified. And Jesus is raised from the dead to seal the blessing of eternal life for all who are in him. Grace Fellowship, this is the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. So go tell the world this message. Go tell everyone. That's what Jesus said, that Jesus Christ is Lord of the living resurrected who will live with him forever let's pray father in heaven as we bow our heads close our eyes and prepare for the end of this there's no person in this place that can leave with an excuse not me not them your word is clear so I ask your spirit to come now save sinners Encourage the saved. As we sing, would you come and deal with our hearts by your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together. Let's respond to the words we just heard.